What gives you hope? This past week, I listened to an interview with Catherine Hayhoe. She's a university professor, a climate scientist, and a prominent and widely respected authority on climate change. She's researched changing weather patterns and their effects on cities and communities. And she advises governments and other groups on how they can plan for healthier relationships between humans and ecological systems. She's also an evangelical Christian. And she said that no matter who she is speaking to these days, whether to academics or students or business people or church groups, everybody is asking her the same question. What gives you hope? Well, she says, a climate scientist is a pretty good person to ask because if there's anybody who could and should be hopeless, it's us. I mean, we're sort of like the physicians of the planet and we see how, exactly how far the disease has spread. We see every new study that comes out showing that climate change is worse than we thought or spreading faster than we thought or impacting us in new ways we didn't even imagine. So I've had to ask myself, well, where do I find hope? In this interview that I heard, she started with some very practical examples, naming cities that are making meaningful and significant changes and airports that are now today carbon neutral, and pointing to the fact that 90% of new energy installed in the part of the world where she lives last year was renewable energy. She offered a wonderful image as well. Imagine climate action is like an enormous boulder. We might picture that boulder at the bottom of a steep hill, she said. It needs to get to the top, and it's going to take a lot of energy to get there, and right now there are just a small number of hands on it. It's just Greta Thunberg and maybe a few others who are pushing, not nearly enough to move it all the way to the top. It's this huge task, and not enough people are helping. It's never really going to move anyway, so why get involved? What difference will my hands make? Why even bother? We might picture it that way. I imagine that's actually not too far from the sinking feeling some of us have at times when it comes to climate action. But that's not the right image, says Heho. In fact, the boulder is already way up that hill. There's all kinds of momentum going the right direction, and there are millions of hands already on it and pushing. It just doesn't have enough to get it going faster, she says. And when we think, well, maybe I could add my hand to that, because I could get it going just a little bit faster, well, then that's totally different than if we think it's at the bottom of the hill, not budging even an inch. So, she said, I think there's tremendous hope in that. She named all these reasons to be hopeful, and she offered that image that I find so helpful and encouraging. And then she said one more thing, which I didn't see coming, and it's directly related to her background as a person of faith. For me, she said, Hope does not begin in a place of positive circumstances. It's not usually how we think of hope, is it? I think we tend to imagine hope either as kind of a feeling, one you feel when the circumstances are positive, when you're pretty sure things are heading your way, or as wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain all weekend. I hope my team wins the big match. 
But the hope that Heho is talking about here is neither of those things. It's not optimism, and it's not flimsy, wishful thinking. It's much more daring than that, and much more subversive. It says, contrary to all appearances, I believe something better really is possible, and I can take steps toward it. We can take steps toward it together. The book of Revelation is treated as lots of different things, a collection of disturbing predictions, a code to be cracked, a weapon to instill fear in others, or a book that's too weird to be taken seriously. This book has been read and misread in so many ways over the years that it's very easy to lose sight of what it really is at its heart, a testament of radical and subversive hope. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, says John of Patmos in our reading today, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You could read all those lines and very well imagine that things are going just wonderfully for John, that God's favor is sort of visible all around him, that all is right with the world, since, after all, Jesus is in charge. You could imagine that. But really, nothing could be farther from the truth. Things actually look pretty dire. The Romans are, in fact, very much in charge, in John's part of the world, at least. Some years earlier, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and now they're increasingly viewing Christians as a nuisance. In some places, followers of Jesus find themselves punished or exiled or even killed. Christian communities themselves are floundering, some are suffering persecution, some are losing their way and are barely distinguishable from the culture around them. Some are complacent and lukewarm, lacking in inspiration and energy. And John himself is pretty far from the action on Patmos, a small island in the Aegean Sea, where he has likely been exiled for his faith. The world that he is looking out on here is not obviously glorious and light-filled, and free from conflict. It actually looks like a pretty glorious mess. This Jesus movement looks tiny and fragile and on the edge of falling apart. But that doesn't stop John. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John starts this strange book that will certainly acknowledge the trouble and the danger all around him and the communities he's writing to. He starts this strange book with these confident and extravagant words of praise to the Alpha and the Omega, to the God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that's what biblical hope looks like. Even in the most challenging circumstances, it raises its head to the living God the one who is now and who was in the past and who will be in the future. It's bold and strong. It does not begin in a place of positive circumstances. And make no mistake, it is deeply subversive. It's easy to miss here, but time and again, John takes language that's reserved for the empire and its rulers and uses it for God instead. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth here, which of course puts him higher 
than the emperor himself. Glory and dominion belong to Jesus, not to Rome. It may look like Rome is in charge, says John. It may look like all of you reading this letter are just nobodies meeting in tiny groups talking about a man who was killed 50 years ago. But make no mistake, you are part of God's own family. You are near to God's own heart. And you are freed right now for life that is full. Your true allegiance is not to the rulers of this world, but to God alone. To read this book of the Bible faithfully is not to get caught up in fear-mongering or end-times predictions. It's to hear once again that in whatever challenges we may be facing, we can lift up our heads because God alone is God. And as God's beloved people, we can approach this day with hope. In just a couple of minutes, Wa'ed and Joyce are going to bring Nicholas up here to the font. And we're going to gather around them with the very simplest of things. Some words, a little water, and ourselves. They don't look like much, but in these few gifts, we find mercy for a lifetime. <coughs> Strong bonds of love and boundless grace. We will proclaim here today that Nicholas is brought to new birth and cleansed from sin and raised to eternal life. We'll announce that he has been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. That is who you are, Nicholas. Other voices will come and go in your life, telling you you're lots of other things, that you're defined by the grades you get in school or the job that you hold or the number of friends you have, or the mistakes you've made, or the honors you've earned. All those things may be visible, there to see on the surface, but there will always be a deeper truth. The truth that you belong to God, that you are beloved by God, and that nothing can ever keep you from that love. Others will not see the watery cross on your forehead, but it will be there. It will always be there. And friends, that is where our hope begins. Not with our circumstances or our achievements or our merits, but with God. With this God of today and yesterday and tomorrow who comes to us, who enters our world and calls us each by name and graces us with the gifts of our lives and ourselves and the possibility to make a difference. Hope begins with the God who embraces Nicholas today and each of us as well. John knew that there on the lonely island of Patmos with trouble all around. He knew that hope does not begin with us, but with the love that has found us. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.